We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 20. Um, this has been a burden on my heart of um, just thinking about the church, what makes a successful church, and what's the church about. Uh, this passage, this chapter has been just very uh, precious to me the last couple of years. I've just been thinking very often about it, coming back to it, and I just want to share that to us as we come to the close of one year and another year um, is beginning, you know, I would like us to just reflect on some of these things because the church in Ephesus, uh, which is what this is, is the place that Paul spent most of his time at. And so, the, there's a lot for us to learn there. Jesus is our supreme example. But as a servant of God, as a man of God, as, as a follower of Jesus, Paul is really our primary example. How a man follows Christ, Paul is our example of how to do that. How does a church function? What are the main things that makes a church successful? These are the things that... Um, Paul talks about. So I want us to reflect on these things. Um, there's so much material here that we will not be able to cover. Even if we had 10 Tuesdays, you can spend a lot of time on this. But we're going to be reading that. So we're going to start in verse 13. This is Paul, who spent, like I said, three years in Ephesus. And that's the longest he stayed in any particular place. And now that he knows that his time there has come to an end, he gathers the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he tells them certain things that he wants them to remember and pay attention to. Now, Paul knows very similar. Um, Luke, the writers of Acts, wrote two books in the Bible. What's the other book that he wrote? Very easy. Luke, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> he wrote the Gospel of Luke, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Book of Acts, and they sort of have a parallel, actually, they both uh, involve some, uh, in one case it's Jesus, and in the other it's Paul, and they both end up on a journey towards Jerusalem, and they both end up in a trial that's not a fair trial, and um, you, you see those similarities there, so Paul here is, has finished his work in Ephesus, and he gathers up the elders of the church, and he sort of gives them his farewell address. He says later that, I know that you will not see me again after now. So when Paul is facing some elders that he knows he's not going to see again, and these are the people who will take over the work from him, there are some key things that he tells them. And these are things that are good for you and I to remember. This is not just for elders. This is for anybody, especially if you're in ministry, whether you teach Sunday school, whether you do breakdown and set up, whether you mix audio and do live stream, doesn't matter. It's, it's for us. It's how do we serve the Lord? How do we pursue the Lord? This is, these are the keys of how can we be a healthier church. Now, I thank the Lord that this is a healthy church. I always say that. Um, the, uh, the healthiest that I have ever been a part of the leadership of. 
And I thank the Lord for that. So this is just for us. To, it's not that the church in Ephesus was bad or had problems, but it was a good church. God did some amazing things there, but these are things that Paul wanted these elders nevertheless to focus on and to remember. And so I'd like us to begin. Um, I'm actually going to skip down, uh, skip down and... Go to verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. That first verse, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you for three years. You know, how, you, you know how I lived while I was among you. He didn't, does not say to them, remember what I taught. Then they say, you, you know what I taught. You know my theology. It tells them first, you know how I lived. Life is more important than what we say. We can say a lot of good things. We can sing the right songs but it matters how we actually are living. Let no one kid you. We can say all the right things, we can teach all the right doctrine, but in the end, Paul, the first thing that he said was not about his teachings, was about his life. And he's telling them, you notice here, he's telling, he doesn't tell them, you know how Jesus lived. He said, no, you know the way I lived, in my, me, in my life. He could look at these elders and tell them, listen, you all know I was not a hypocrite. You all know that I wasn't here saying one thing and living, another, uh, uh, and living in another way. He pointed out to his life. And as we were sharing at one of the Friday studies a couple of weeks ago, It's not just enough to tell people, look at Jesus. Sure, people should look at Jesus in terms of salvation and putting their trust in him. But you and I should be able to say to people what Paul said to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's not arrogance. That's just a man who's not a hypocrite. Who's telling his people, if you live like me, you are going to become better followers of Jesus Christ. You ought to be able to say that to someone. It may be your brothers that you live with, your children that you live with, your spouse, your, the people you serve in ministry with. They ought to be able to see some of Christ in you. The people that live with me in my house ought to be able to see something of Christ in me. If they tell you he's a hypocrite, just see him there come and teach his on uh, church, but then... It's all an act. I want to tell you, nothing destroyed, the church of Jesus Christ can be destroyed by outside forces. The church has never, ever been destroyed by a force from outside. The devil can destroy the church, not Democrats or Republicans. It's not a judge. It's not, uh, it's not Hollywood. It's not any other. The only thing that destroys a church is when the people become hypocrites. 
when the people stop praying, stop pursuing the Lord, and they can no longer say, take a look at how we live. And it all becomes about, this is our theology, we are three-point Calvinists, we are five-point Calvinists, we are no-point Calvinists. It's, when it becomes about that stuff, and it's no longer about how people are living, then the fruit that is born from following the Lord, then you're, go, then you're, you're beginning to go straight. It's only a matter of time before it goes, it goes down here. So you know how I live. Paul reminded them of how I live. Character is more important than achievement. We have become a church where oftentimes you would hear, even when a speaker is being invited in a church, um, you often hear people say, yeah, this is, he's got these many people in his church, he's, got, he's written these many books, they have sold this much, he's able to hold the crowd, he's able to keep people, uh, at, uh, people's attention, he's an amazing speaker. How often do you hear people say, we're going to have this speaker, he's an amazing husband, we, we know what his wife thinks of him, um, we know what his children thinks of him. We look at the achievements, and we've got, we got that from the world. We got that from the world. Because in the world, it's not your character that matters, it's your achievements that matter. And I'm not saying that we be underachievers, but in the kingdom of God, there has to be a difference, and the difference is in this kingdom, we value character above people's achievements. And... Um, it is unfortunate that it has gotten lost. And at the end of the day, when we stand before God, it's not going to be how big, how much of a big crowds we had and what we achieved, um, what awards we got. It's going to be how we lived. It's going to be how we lived. So, and here is what um, Paul points out in how he, he lived, verse 19. I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews. Of the way he lived, the one thing that he highlights, there were many things that he could have highlighted. He was a patient man. He was a faithful man. He was a hardworking man. But the one thing that he does spell out is, I serve the Lord with humility. And interestingly, do you know the one place in the Bible, in the Gospels, where Jesus describes his character? Who knows? It's a hard question. There's one place in the Gospels where Jesus actually describes his character. There's only one place where he says about himself, this is the way I am. You know where that is? No, no, it's not in the, in the trial. Well, I'll give it to you. It's in Matthew. Um, I'll, I'll read it because it's important. It's in Matthew chapter 11. And he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. So the one place where Jesus highlighted his character, he also highlighted his humility. Now, when you and I think of humility, we think of, well, I'm bad, uh, I'm, uh, we must be humble because we're so sinful. Well, that's not the case because Jesus was not, had no sin, yet he was humble. 
His humility was in how willing he was to go low in serving others and in obeying the Father. He was willing to become anything to all people. He was willing to wash his, his apostles' feet. He washed their feet, their feet. They never washed his. And so Paul also highlights the same thing. God resists the proud and the arrogant. I'm realizing that more and more. When there is arrogance, where there is pride, God says, hasta luego. I'll see you later. Once you humble yourself a little bit, I'll be back. But until then, you're on your own. The Bible said God resists the proud. It, it's not when, when we're walking in pride, when we're walking in arrogance, it's not the devil who's against us. It's God. If the devil is against you, God can help you out. But if God is against you, who's going to help? It's what makes pride an unusual sin. It's not, it's, God, it does not say God resists the adulterers. It says God resists the proud. It's the mother of all sins. And so, how can we be, uh, grow as a healthy church, as a victorious church? We ought to care about our character more than we care about our achievements or what positions we hold. And we need to humble ourselves. Now, there is two ways in which we can become humble. One is God humbles us. That's usually not the preferred way because that usually entails some pain. Um, but the preferred way is that we humble ourselves. That we can do. That means always choosing the lowest path. Um, I heard this from a man of God, an old man of God. He's now old in his 80s. He says something once that I've never forgotten. Water always flows to the lowest place. Water always flows to the lowest place. Someone um, says something against you, they insult you, you don't respond. Um, someone mistreats you, you don't, uh, you, you don't strike back. And something is said against you about you, you put it in God's hand. You choose, in, in every situation you look, God, where's the law? How can I go lower in this situation? When God sees that, there is what I call the law of spiritual gravity. You know there's a law of gravity. If you hold this thing and you know the mass of it, you drop it and you know the distance from here to the ground, you know the acceleration, it's what, 9.2 meter per second or something like that. You know, can predict exactly when it's going to fall. It's like, it, there's no exception. It applies to everybody. And so there's a law of spiritual gravity which says everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. That's a law. A church that humbles itself, God will exalt it. You see, that was gravity. Thank you. Th thank you. See, it's just been raised up. It went low and it's been lifted. Yeah. That's, the, that's the law of spiritual gravity. And Jesus talks about that in Luke chapter 11. So, um, the other thing that Paul says then here in verse 20, he house. I have declared to both Jews and Greek that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul beginning to give us what message he did teach. 
He said that I gave the same message to everyone, to Greeks, to the Jews, to everyone, rich, rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, doesn't matter. Everyone, here's the message that everyone needs. They must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Let me tell you something that you maybe have never heard, okay? That I noticed studying the Word of God. Everywhere in the Bible where forgiveness and repentance are mentioned, repentance always mentioned first. Everywhere where forgiveness and repentance are mentioned, repentance is mentioned first. Everywhere where faith and repentance are mentioned, repentance is mentioned first. It's not, uh, it's not an accident. The gospel is the gospel not just believe in Jesus Christ, but it is repent and believe. Now, there are some churches that only teach repent and repent and repent, and that can lead to very depressed and morose people. And then there are some churches that teach faith and faith and faith and, uh, and grace and grace and grace, but never teach repentance, and that leads to fake Christianity and fake Christian living. And it is having both, and both are fake gospel. It's like the $100 bills. You need both sides of the $100 bill. If you saw a $100 bill, one side looked okay, the other side had Mickey Mouse on it. You wouldn't use it. So when you see a gospel that says grace, 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 and no repentance, that's a gospel, that, that's a Mickey Mouse gospel. It does not save. You will not go to heaven believing that. No one enters the kingdom without repentance. Paul taught that. That's never been a popular message. It was not in the days of Paul. It is not today. It never will be. But it is what God has said we need to teach. What's repentance? Repentance is turning away. It's, I used to walk this way, basically doing what I want. I got up in the morning and I did what Freddie wanted. Freddie wants to drink, he drinks. I don't drink, but I'll just do an example. So if Freddie wants to drink, he gets up, he drinks as much as he wants. Freddie gets up, he, he feels like insulting someone, he insults them. Now, you meet Christ, you have a collision with Jesus Christ, and you make a turn, and now the turn of direction is, now you get up in the morning, you're like, what does Jesus Christ want? What does he want for me to do? That's repentance. It is repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that brings us salvation. But unfortunately, that is something that has been neglected. We cannot, um, we cannot neglect that. Verse... You know, one time someone told me, if you preach repentance, people will not want to come to your church. And they said that they have been studying methods of church growth, and they were trying to give me advice on how to do, to do ministry. Um, I'm not laughing because they shouldn't be giving advice. Um, it, it's just that the advice was just so unbiblical. Say, don't preach repentance See, people already know they need to repent, so don't, don't say it. Well, Paul didn't, Paul did, that's not what Paul says here. He says that I declare to both, to both Greeks that they need, to rip, they need to repent. So he said, I taught you everything that was useful 
in public and from house to house. Number three thing that I want to point out here is verse 22. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul was led by the Spirit. There wasn't, uh, here is the three-year plan or the five-year plan that we have for the church. And here's our, our strategy and, and all that. Paul said, led by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing, clearly, not knowing what's going to happen. So why are you going to Jerusalem? What's the plan there? I don't know. But the Spirit is leading me to go there. We have to be a church that is led by the Spirit of God. The, if you think of the church as an operation, it has a director. And that director is the Holy Spirit. You and I don't get to say, here's what the church should be like, here's what we need to do, and so forth. It has to be the Holy Spirit that leads us and directs us. And because Paul and this church in Ephesus was Spirit-led, God blessed them. And you see here that Paul was sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and that is something that we all need to grow in, learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit was sent to be our helper, to help us believers, to help us to walk with the Lord. And so you can think of the Holy Spirit as God in you, in me, helping us to walk the Christian walk, saying here, walk here, don't walk there, watch out here, that's not good, go over here, don't go there. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And unfortunately, that is also something that's become rare. We think that today we are so smart and we have, you know, we have computers, we can put a man in the moon and bring him back, and so we have all these tech and all these gadgets, and so, and a lot of that has crept in and replaced a good part of being led by the Holy Spirit. And Paul here is reminding them it is being compelled by the Spirit. That's how we ought to walk as a, as a body. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing if, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Let me read that again. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. Wait, what? I thought the Holy Spirit will tell you that blessings and prosperity are awaiting you in the city where you're going. Isn't that what you hear most of the time? Why is it that the Holy Spirit is, 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 is saying, you see, here's one thing that has really been lost and that needs to be explained. You may know all this and understand it already, but maybe there are some who don't, and I want to explain that. Oftentimes, people, those who preach prosperity and, and God will give you money, it's going to be health and wealth and all of that. First of all, it doesn't work. That kind of gospel works when the economy is doing well. Um, I have a friend of mine who quoted me some, um, you know, a popular, we'll call him a Christian, popular uh, 
person who says these kinds of things. God will help you achieve your dream. Your best life is awaiting you and all of that. You're going to become... And, 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 I, and this person wasn't even a Christian, but they loved hearing that stuff. And I say that, you know, that stuff works when life is going well. When you suddenly face some of the realities of life, a relative gets cancer and they are close to dying. People don't have a, an appetite to hear stuff like, yeah, you're going to achieve your dream and all that is going to happen and, and things like that. It, it's, a, it's a gospel that's good to hear when life is going well, you got a great job, or you're, you know, you're in school and you have time and you're having fun. You, you can hear stuff like that. But when the inevitable crisis of life comes, that stuff proves to be very shallow. And those who follow that, you can see when crisis hits them, they can't, they can't stand, they collapse under various crises of life because that did not prepare them. So here's the reality, here's the truth about that. In the Old Testament, God did promise them, they had an earthly covenant. Okay? So everything was earthly. The promises were earthly. If you follow me, you obey my commandments, I will give you land. I will give you, uh, you will overcome the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Gergesites. And I'll give you many children. That's one of those, depending on what part of the country, people don't like that, uh, that, that one, that blessing. And so it was all earthly. I'll give you money, I'll give you wealth, I'll give you all these things. And no enemies will be able to stand against you and you will overcome. You will never lose a war. That, that was the promise that God gave to Israel. In the new covenant, and also you have long life. In the new covenant, it is a different covenant. We are a heavenly kingdom. We are a spiritual kingdom. God doesn't promise us to give us land. There's no holy country. America is not the holy country. Neither is Israel the holy country. Uh, neither is Congo a holy country. Uh, that's where I was born. There is no holy country in the world. It's, uh, there is, it, it's, it's God who has a spiritual people, and the blessings are spiritual. God has blessed us with all spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. And so, the confu you see there the confusion. Well, God went in the Old Covenant when they took Daniel's three friends and they threw them into the furnace, God sent an angel and they were not burnt. But the same God allowed James and all the, all, they, they tell a tradition says 11 out of the 12 apostles were killed. Who allowed that? God did. The same God who closed the mouths of the lion to protect Daniel and who did not allow the heat to kill his friend, he allowed his people to suffer. We're in a different covenant. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. He goes to the cross, we follow Him there. And so, when Paul is saying here, the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardship are facing me, that is, the, that, that, that is what happens. Part, we ought to be willing to embrace that suffering is part of the Christian life. Be, be very careful Beware of any Christianity that promises you that you will not suffer. In fact, if your Christianity is not costing you to suffer anything, 
I worry for you. You need to check yourself and make sure that you are in the faith. Because if you're a believer, somewhere, somehow, it's going to cause you suffering. You may lose friends. People may mock you at your job. Um, you may lose a promotion because your boss knows you're a Christian and that you don't agree with certain things. You have to be willing to suffer that cost. You may lose friends. I know people who have gotten saved and their girlfriend or boyfriend left them because they did not, because it was just their new life was incompatible with what the other person wanted. That happens. But we have to be willing to suffer. However, it's not, that's not the end of the story. We have a hope. We don't, suffer, uh, we don't suffer just for sake of suffering. We have a hope. The difference between a Christian going through a hard thing and an unbeliever going through a hard thing, it is that we have the comfort and the grace of God that goes with us through it. And so there's two, there's two ways to go through the suffering. There, there's, you can go through it with joy because God is with us. Or you go through it without the Lord. And usually that's what happens. And that's the difference between suffering and when you're under God's discipline. The suffering that Paul talks about here is that he was going for the gospel Prison and hardship were facing him, and that's the way God wanted him to glorify him. God wanted Paul to glorify the Lord by, being, by suffering, and that's going to be the same for you and I. Christianity has never been popular and never will be. Um, it always has involved a cost. It always has involved a price. And that's something that we need to embrace. Verse 24 says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. There's a task for each one of us. And you and I, um, in the kingdom of God, God has given you something specific just for you to do. And you ought to find out what it is and pursue it and fulfill it. Verse 25, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Another thing that Paul did preach here, I'll just mention briefly, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a topic that Jesus mentioned over and over in the gospel. It comes up, it simply means God ruling and governing over us. The governance of God coming into our lives, coming into our heart, as he is in heaven, as he rules in heaven, God comes and rules over our lives by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. That's verse 26. Why was he innocent of the blood? That's, that's an interesting statement there. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Wait a minute. Like, why are we talking about here? Did Paul commit? Did Paul say he did not murder anyone? Why would he, how would he have been guilty of the blood of all men? Verse 27 gives the answer, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. When, um, and this is maybe more true for pastors, for ministers, than it is true for others. But he says here that the reason he's free from the, 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 is innocent of the blood of all people is because 
he did not hesitate to tell people all of the truth, the parts that were popular, the parts that were not popular. He was not trying to be liked, he was trying to help the people. He wasn't trying to make the people happy, he was trying to help them be holy. And so he told, he told them everything, including heaven and hell, including repentance and faith, including joy and suffering in the Lord, including the fact that we are blessed by the Lord, but that we also will need to sacrifice for the Lord. It it, it, he taught them the whole thing, and that's what made him free from the blood of all people. We are responsible for the blood of people if we don't tell them the truth. You say, How, why is that? Well, you can think of it this way. If there, is, there are firefighters, you know, um, Brother David Blades, who's not here tonight, is a fire, well, he's not a fire inspector, he's not a firefighter anymore. But if there was uh, a fire in the building here, and the firemen were there and knew there's a fire there, and they say, oh, yeah, we're going to go grab some coffee. And they go and, and they go have some coffee and eat croissants, and, and, then, and then they found that people, people died. Sure, the people died, but really the, their blood is on the firefighters who failed to save them from that fire. And you and I, the church, has a responsibility that no other organization has. It is to preach and tell people the truth that can save them from eternal hell, from eternal death. There are other organizations, Muslim organization, Hindu organization, atheist organization can feed the poor, they can do schools, they can um, feed the hungry, they can provide you know, medical help and all of those things. Secular organizations and non-Christian organizations can do all of that. The thing that only the church can do is rescue people from eternal death and bring them in. And we do that by telling people the whole truth. Because of that, we have a responsibility to the world. You and I do. We have a, resp we have, and we have a debt that we owe to the whole world to bring them the gospel. And if you've ever taken evangelism training, you were probably given a book that's titled The One Thing That We Cannot Do in Heaven. What's that thing? It is to tell people about Jesus Christ. We are going to be worshiping in heaven. We're going to be learning more about God. But the one thing that we will not be able to do is tell people about the Lord. We have a debt. We have a responsibility to, to, um, to, to, to you know. And I tell you, my own philosophy on this is this, you know, that I don't want to go to heaven with, you know, when people say, in sports and, and, and all that, they, they went to a competition. Um, there was just a World Cup that concluded. I hope none of you skipped church to watch the final. If you did, I hope you've already repented. And, um, you know, there was a, once upon a time, there was a time when I might have been tempted to do that if it was on a Sunday. Um, but, it, you know, anyways, but you, see, you hear people say, you know, we lost, but we left it all on the field. We left everything on the field, meaning that they gave it their all. And whenever the time comes when God says, you know, Freddie, your time here on earth is over. Come on up, or that Jesus comes back. I want to be able to say, God, I, I gave it my all. 
that I left everything on the field, the time that I had, the energy that I had, I invested as much of it as I knew how in serving the Lord and getting the gospel to be known. Because, listen, everything else is going to pass away. Your degrees, we're now going to take our houses out of here. Uh, we're not taking our cars out of here. We're, you, we're, not take, we're not taking these things. We're, you're, we're not even taking our families um, in that sense with us. The only thing that's going to matter in the end is how we live for the Lord and what we did for Him. And that's the sentiment with which the early Christians did live. Unfortunately, much of um, what you hear in popular Christianity today is focused on self. God will give me this. God will do this for me. God will do that for me. And it's true. But the reality is, when Jesus Christ went on the cross, when God gave Christ, he gave me more than I ever deserved. There's nothing more that he will give to me that's worth more than that. And the only natural response we have to that is to tell God, God, here's our lives. We're going to live it for you. That's a natural response. My eyes have really been opened to see that. Why is Paul doing all these things? Because Jesus died for him. He gave his all. Um, he even gave his body. He gave it. He gave everything. You and I today, um, I hope that is, our, that is our, um, our goal here, is that we, we all live for the Lord. Um, and that whenever that time comes, we can say with Paul, we gave it all. And it is very interesting, I think on a Tuesday night back in May, I shared from 2 Timothy chapter chapter 4, the last chapter there, it sounds a lot similar to this. That's Paul basically giving his last words to Timothy. And it's interesting. He tells him, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. He sounds very confident. He said, the Lord, the, the righteous judge, is going to give me the crown of life. That wasn't arrogance. That was a man being honest. He said, listen, I, lived, I, I gave my all. I, I, I lived for Christ. And God is just. He's going to give me the crown, the, the crown of life. That's in store, and that should be what all of us desire. Okay, now verse 28, he says, um, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. Um, he told them first, watch over yourself. And only secondly, on all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's another word for bishop or elders. They all mean shepherds, you know, which the, whole, the Lord has made you. Watch over yourself first. If you're in ministry, you see, we have a, a noon prayer. We pray for the senior leaders. Um, every today I was leading, we were praying for David Blades, actually. And so one thing that I always pray when I'm praying for them, when I pray for you who are in ministry, is that, if nothing else, that you maintain your walk with the Lord. That you maintain your time in prayer, your time in seeking the Lord, because we need to watch over ourselves. And, and it is very easy to become focused on ministry. You've got to go here, preach over here, talk over here, do this thing over here. You can become so busy doing stuff. 
and you forget that that's not what it's about. It's about your own relationship with God. So Paul says, watch over your, keep watch over yourself because it's easy to slip up and to become distracted. You'll notice this. You'll find out, you know, when you hear about ministers who have fallen into adultery or there have been some big scandals, they all differ in various ways. But one thing that you will see in common with all of them, without exception, they all stop praying and they all stop truly pursuing time alone with the Lord. If that God, the way to think of God is the source of light, like Jesus said, I'm divine, um, you are the branch. It, the moment that branch is disconnected from that tree, um, it starts to, it, it, it's going to look okay for the next five minutes, but the reality is the moment you cut it from the tree, it's began to die. It was very interesting. A couple of years ago, one of, a big branch from the tree in my backyard fell from the winds around October. And what was interesting, and it took a while before it was removed, um, the landscapers came to take it away. But it was very interesting because... Um, it was around the fall season, and the leaves that were on the tree, they all changed color, turned brown, yellow, gold, and then they all fell. But the leaves that were on the branch that had fallen on the ground were actually looking green for a while. <laughs> I was like, this is quite interesting. I, I thought about that. I was like, there's a, there's a spiritual analogy here. It's like, this thing is looking good, but it's dead. It's looking good. It's looking better than the, 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 the branches that are on the tree. But this thing is dying. I was, like, I was like, God, are you trying to say something? I literally did. I was like, God, are you trying to say something to me? Like, because this is in my backyard. I'm like, God, are you, are you trying to, to give me a message here? Because it's possible. There's a church, but Pastor Keith talked about the church in Sardis. You have a reputation for being alive. But you're dead. You're looking like you're doing well. And it's, but then if you look really, really close, it was a different kind of green that these, these uh, leaves had. But, you could, but it looked good for a long time until it was taken away. That's a very, um, very interesting. Some, one of, someday some of you who maybe know more about uh, botanical stuff can explain to me how that happens. But it told them, watch over yourselves so that you don't end up doing ministry, taking care of others, but then not taking care of yourself. And I'm going to come back to this at the end. But be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. Um, that is another thing that we really do need to remember um, here, is that the church is, was expensive to God. The church was expensive to God. It cost him the blood of his son to purchase the body of Christ. And we ought to be very careful with it, with the people that God brings to us, the people that God entrusts to us here as leaders in the church. We ought to be very careful with that. All right, I'm going to um, go quickly through the rest here. Um, Paul says in verse um, 29, I know that after I leave, I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flocks. 
even from your own numbers, that's very sad, will arise men, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. You always have to be very, very careful. One of the ways that you can tell um, a wolf in a church is whether they draw people after themselves. The church is a place where we point people to Jesus Christ. But you know a wolf when they distort the truth and they draw people after themselves. A true man of God has one desire. A true man of God, a true woman of God has one desire, that people would walk with Jesus Christ. And he will do whatever they can to help people grow spiritually. It took me some time, but I realized that there were some times where I were in places where they really did not care about how I was doing spiritually. As long as I was a part of their group, a part of their organization, or I was helping build somebody's kingdom, they were happy with me being there. But it wasn't really anybody inquiring, like, are you doing well spiritually? Are, are, you, are you walking with the Lord? And I had a conversation with, um, I won't tell you who, but there's a man who's, he's my favorite worship leader. Um, no offense to Dan, who's not here. Um, he, he served with, with a man of God that I do have a lot of respect for. And we talked we talk for like three hours and recently, and I and asked him, what was it like working with him? He told me, well, the first time that I was supposed to go there to the church and for him to interview me, he said we sat there um, before a meeting. It's a church with, it was a church with thousands of people. He said that we sat there, and all he did is ask me, how are you doing with Jesus Christ? How is your relationship with God? He said, nobody ever asked me that before. People only cared about my musical talents in the other churches I was in. He said, as long as I came in and I did my thing and I brought in my talent, they were happy. He said, no one ever asked me that. And he said, the answer was not good. <laughs> not doing well with Jesus Christ. He said, I needed to be asked that. He said, the whole time, we said we talked for 45 minutes, music never came up. <laughs> he said, it was all about how I was doing spiritually. That's a genuine man of God. He's concerned about this man and how he's walking with the Lord, and that has to be the case with, um, with all of us. So let me just mention um, two things here, I promise, and I'm going to close. Um, Sorry, three things. Um, number one, I want to mention to you that, verse 31, be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. With tears. Now, where do you... Um, he mentions that also in verse, in verse, in verse uh, 19. I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. What's all this crying and all these things about? Why is your fault? I mean, why are you shedding tears and, and things like that? Because he loved these people. These were his children. These were people, you, you know, 
they, that's the difference between a hireling, somebody who's only hired to do a job, and someone who's really a father or a spiritual mother. Paul's emotions were, invest, were invested in this. This was not about theology and fighting things. These were people that he loved and cared about. And so he wept. When you shed tears like this, it's because of people that you genuinely care about. That's the kind of attitude that Paul had for the people. And we need to have that for one, for, for one another. Let me mention the other last thing I want to mention here is verse 32. We ought to read this, verse 32 to, to, verse 30, to verse 35. If you have your Bible open, please take a look at it. Now I commit you to the word, to God, and to the word of his grace. That was the second thing I wanted to mention, the Word of God being important. In this new year, please read the Bible. Please read your Word. Don't rely on Pastor Steve or Pastor Eric or anyone else coming and teaching every Sunday. That's not enough. You need to read the Word of God for yourself, and there is no substitute to that. Uh, there's, there's, there is no substitute for that. You, you do need to spend time in the Word of God, but I won't spend much time on that here, uh, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. How do you grow in sanctification? With the Word of God. There's no substitute to that. Now, verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourself know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Wow, for three years that Paul was there, he did not get any salary from these Ephesians people. He worked with his hand to provide for his needs and the needs of his companions. Now, he didn't always do that. There were some times when he, he did receive, uh, where he did receive pay. But the point being here is that he was not doing this for money. Money was not the motivation here. And... In everything I did, verse 35, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of our, the, the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is one of the statements of Jesus that we don't have in the gospel, but that Paul, that Paul gives to us. You, often, you sometimes hear this verse quoted, it is more blessed to receive than to give. So come and give to me. Give to me and God will come and sow your seed of faith here in my ministry and you're going to be blessed. And that's why you have to read the Bible in context. The person who said this, said this in order to say that he did not get money from people. You get that? Paul was quoting this to say that he as a minister did not get, take, take money. But this is often quoted by greedy ministers who want you to give them their money, your money, so that they can live in luxury taking money from people who don't have much. And that's been rampant in the Christian world. But Paul was here, he made it very, very clear that people in the church were not a means for gain. He did not use people as an accessory. In the world, people are used and taken advantage of. Businesses and Places are trying to take advantage of them. The church should be a place where people know that they're not here 
to be taken advantage of. And I thank God that that's the kind of leadership we have here. I can tell you, and I don't say that because I'm part of the leadership, but I can tell you that you do have people here who are concerned with one thing, that you would walk with the Lord and be faithful to him. Verse 36, when he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Um, They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they will never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. These people responded by weeping and crying. Why is that? Why would they weep and cry? Because they also loved Paul. And I want to say something to you, and you know, and I want to say this especially on behalf of Pastor Steve, because he may not say this himself. A leader needs to be loved by his people. And just as much as I've spoken here about Paul loving the people, not taking advantage of them and so forth, Paul knew that these people also loved him as demonstrated here. You cry like that when you know that when you love someone. You know, when I left to come to college, my mom started to cry and she took me to Alexandria, Virginia, to, where I took a train to come to Boston. And, and um, I heard the story later. She was there at the train station after the train left and she was crying and um, she got on the train. The train started moving. Then she was like, oh no, I'm not going. They stopped the train to let her out. The, the driver was upset and tell her, ma'am, next time I'll take you to D.C. And my mom was like, no, I'll take care of my son. And the guy started to laugh. And um, anyway, she got off and she was sitting there crying. And the lady comes and she's like, ma'am, are you okay? What's wrong? She said, my son is gone. He's like, where did he go? It's like, he, he went to college. like, he's going to come back. <laughs> so I'm like, no, it's not the same thing. You know, you, you, you weep like that when you love someone. And that's what you see on both sides here uh, from Paul and from these people. In short, here, here's what I, the, the way I'll, I'll summarize this, I'll summarize it is, is this. Um, a healthy church, successful church is where people are pursuing God and pursuing each other in love where people truly love the Lord and where people truly love one another. We have to root for one another. We have to be a, try to be a blessing to one another. Not every, not, nobody is perfect. Everybody has their flaws. Everyone has their issue. Everybody is trying to grow. But what we do owe each other, we owe each other love, prayer, support, that we may walk with the Lord. A church where that's the case, where people are trying to love the Lord and where people are trying to pursue one another is going to be a place where God moves and does amazing things. You know, I heard somebody say, the devil does not fear a large church. He fears a united church. And um, that, that's really, that, that is so true. 